Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. All right, good morning. Today's text comes from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, just, maybe just set it right there. All right. Maxie, is Maxie with you? Tell her happy birthday. Okay. Well, I'm so pleased to see faces I haven't seen in a while. I didn't expect that to happen on July 4th, a weekend. I'm so glad to get to be together with all of you. I hope that you're coming in and you're encouraged. Uh, I hope that you're coming in and you're among friends, or maybe you're walking in and you have a little bit of an emotional or relational limp in life right now. Or maybe it's been a while since you've been in a church and your blood pressure is elevated, you're feeling a little bit uncertain, or you're new and you kind of don't know the rhythm and the rules of a new congregation. I don't know if you're here and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you totally and vehemently disagree with us I just want to say to each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are welcome and you are wanted, and I'm glad that you're here, and it's a gift to get to open up the scriptures together today. So uh, today we're, we're talking about the second fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. And I knew as I was getting ready this week that I had a really great quote on joy somewhere hidden in my Twitter favorites. I've liked like 3,000 quotes, you know, and things that I've held on to. And I was going through all of my quotes on Twitter, and I couldn't find it anywhere. But what I did find is three uh, quotes from, you remember the old Saturday Night Live, Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy? Those of you who are Gen X or older millennials, boomers may be familiar with this. Not on topic, but worthwhile nonetheless. So three deep thoughts I want to share with you before we dive into the Scriptures. First, When you get to heaven, if they give you a choice between regular heaven and pie heaven, choose pie heaven. It might be a trap, but if not, mm boy. (laughs) Second one is my personal favorite. Two men are walking down the street. One is named Hambone. The other is Flippy. Which one do you think loves dolphins more? I'd say Flippy, wouldn't you? You'd be wrong, though. It is ham bone. (laughs) If that's funny to you, we might be friends. Okay, here's the third. Sometimes the best way to understand a word is to study the words that make up that word. Take mankind, for example. It is made of two words, mank, and eind. (laughs) Nobody knows what those words mean. They are a mystery, and so is mankind. (laughs) You're welcome. Well, uh, 
my friend John Enzer, Dr. John Enzer, shared for the last couple of weeks and introduced us to Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it's an intense book. If you study Paul's epistles, you'll, you'll notice that omitted from his typical form is the big thanksgiving section that he has in lots of the other letters to the churches. He says, howdy, and then he gets down to business because there's, there's a, a major issue at work in the life of the church. It's, this is a primarily Gentile community in southern Turkey, but they were a community that was being heavily influenced by Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers maintained that in order for these Galatian Christians to be real Christians, they needed needed to become Jews first. And this was primarily demonstrated by being circumcised. And Paul did not have a small reaction to this influence within the church. This is Paul in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But Paul says, but if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse." He says, I am astonished that you're believing this other gospel. The other gospel that these believers were were accepting was that they could be made right with God by obeying the works of the law, by, by, by putting in their own effort into obedience and alignment with what God says in the old covenant, that they would be made right with God. And Paul says, this is in like direct contrast to the gospel that I've given you, which Paul says he got by divine revelation. Uh, this is a summary of his gospel in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Here's the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That sounds like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He says, look, we, even if we are Gentiles, are true Israel. We've been welcomed into true Israel, not through obedience to the the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus became the curse. He took on the curse that was ours, that we might be adopted into his family and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this this dichotomy of law and gospel represents two visions of life for the believer. One of these is law where it's all about you and your efforts, your works. And Paul says, if you choose the route of I'm going to be a Christian, attempt to be a Christian by obeying the law, you need to know that you're obligated to obey everything that is in the law which the story of Israel proves again and again they were incapable of doing. No one is proved righteous by obedience to the law. It's not possible. In fact, he was in a mood when he wrote this. You know that he was in a mood. He said, in fact, if you're going to be circumcised, you men, just go ahead and emasculate yourselves. You're like, okay, easy, Paul. He said, "This, this is one option is to take the route of law. The other one is the option of gospel, which is really the only option, which is putting our faith and confidence that God in Christ is going to sort us out and put us back together. 
begins with a recognition, I do not have the ability to do what God requires of me, but God in Christ has provided all that is required on my behalf. And Paul urged uh, these Gentiles, these Galatians, to resist those who are trying to make a life with Christ all about our efforts alone. He likened that kind of life to slavery. And he begins chapter 5 saying, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You don't need to go the route of trying to bear the weight of our righteousness on our own shoulders. It's in trusting God and Jesus Christ. He's putting us back together. Now, a place where I too often see this tension between uh, law and gospel uh, is on full display in mine and Emily's parenting styles. And I'm telling you right now, Emily is the hero in this story, and I am the person who's learning. Uh, I am more often than not the law parent who really just wants compliance. Any parents out here would confess you are that parent who just really wants compliance? Yeah. Uh, I want my children to obey, and I want those things right now. Now, at times, my desire for our kids to comply with my wishes and my preferences bulldozes relationship and lacks empathy. Some of you parents will know exactly what I mean when I say sometimes you just want to win. (laughs) It's like this is no longer about whatever we were talking about. This is about me winning and you losing because I'm the grown-up here and I should win. I'm like that way too much as a parent, and I know exactly why Paul says elsewhere, fathers, do not exasperate your children, because I know the look on my children's faces when I've exasperated them, and it stinks. Emily, on the other hand, at least a lot more frequently than me, uh, Emily has no less of a desire for compliance, but she's just learned by putting in the time and the work and the reflection and reading and prayer and seeking counsel that strong-handed parenting often just doesn't work. But instead, working to maintain a genuine connection with the kids while simultaneously listening to them and taking them seriously and teaching and modeling along the way yields both better results and more peaceful results. And this represents, in my mind, much more of a gospel-centered approach to parenting. And she reminds me at times like the, the kids genuinely lack the circuitry they need to make good choices. They don't have the capability. Sometimes they don't have the logical building blocks to even understand what I'm trying to say when I'm in the process of exasperating them. But we have to maintain a genuine connection. And if if we have a genuine connection flowing from a loving, connected relationship with our kids, when they see us attempt to be well-regulated, mature human beings in that connected relationship, it's it's like the the greatest way that they can learn to be well-regulated, mature human beings that are just smaller than us. They need that connection. They need that empathy they need, they need that kind of modeling for them to learn to be a, a mature, responsible person. I don't always like this. As I've said, I want to win, but I see that Emily's way, in both the means and the ends, I see that it's better. Now, in Galatians, Paul characterizes this kind of connection-first, trust-first life with God as certainly believing in the gospel, but he also uses the language a lot of walking in the Spirit. 
There's such an intimate, connected relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that a person is, is yielding like good things from their lives. This kind of life where we're connected to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit, where we've forsaken hope in white-knuckled, grit your teeth into compliance kind of religion, and instead putting our whole trust that God and Christ is putting us back together and teaching us to be well naturally yields better results. And it yields these fruits, this evidence that God's Spirit is in us in our regular lives. Uh, the first of these is love, as John Enzer talked about last week. And love, uh, he didn't uh, contrast to hate, but, but uses the word philotomia, the love of honor, as the real point of contrast with a biblical definition of love here. Uh, philotomia is about the love of honor, the love of status. It's, it's loving the feeling we get when other people, people see us do stuff that's awesome. But genuine biblical love, on the other hand, is a selfless inclination to will the good of others, independent of the social benefits that it may yield us. The first of the, the fruits of the Spirit is love. The second one is joy. Now, I'm going to give you a great definition for joy that I had never heard before, and I hope it's a blessing to you. I came across this in my studies, and quite simply, joy is grace recognized. Joy is grace recognized. Now, Greek word for grace is charis. The Greek word for joy is kara. There's a relationship between those two words. Emily was reminding me this week of a friend of ours who had had all of her children, decided that she was done having children, but the Lord kind of out of nowhere put it on her heart that she was to have another daughter and that daughter was going to be named Joy. And they were a little bit past, you know, the years of having children themselves. They're thinking adoption and, and an opportunity came up for adoption of a, a special needs girl from China. Um, and, and our friend was like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. That's a big responsibility. We're getting a little bit older. And they said, what's the little girl's name? And her name was Kara Joy. It's like, well, now we have to. <laughs> the Lord promised me more joy, and they adopted Joy, and she's so sweet. One of the hallmarks of a genuine conversion experience, meaning you've gone from not being in a relationship with Jesus to being in a relationship, you've gone from death to life, one of the characteristics of a genuine conversion experience is that that person is filled with joy. Go to Acts chapter 17, you may, maybe remember the story of Paul and Silas are in prison, they're singing, and all of the gates of the, the, in the prison flow, fly open. And the jailer, afraid that everyone's going to sneak out, prepares to kill himself. And Paul and Silas say, we're, we're just sitting right here. And they share the gospel with him. Verse 29 says, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Those who come to trust in Jesus are filled with a recognition that life itself is grace. 
that life itself is a gift. To be a joyful person is to be a person who has the capacity to recognize the grace and the gifts of God in, in everywhere we look. I, I often quote, though we've never sung it, there's this old song by Matt Redman I love called Breathing the Breath. He said, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good and perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart, and all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. Even the capacity to thank God is generated by this, this gift, this seed within us. All of life is a gift. Those who have the Spirit of God are filled with joy and given this capacity to see the blessedness, the giftedness, the grace that is our lives. Uh, even, even in unexpected places, we can see the grace of God. Some of us have had the blessing, though it often feels like a curse when you're walking through it, of undergoing some kinds of suffering. And one of the great gifts that sometimes comes with suffering is an awareness of just how precious life really is. Emily and I were at the beach uh, about a month ago, and I was thinking about this lyric from U2. I, uh, I can't remember which song it's from, but the lyric says, Paradise is a place you can't see when it's yours. Paradise is a place you can't see when it's yours. And when you suffer, and when you experience vulnerabilities and risks, you begin to see the paradise that is your lives. Emily read me a story recently uh, from a book called Home to Harmony by Philip Goley. It's kind of like, um, oh, Al, no, what is his name, Emily? The NPR guy. Garrison Keillor. Yeah, he's no longer on the radio. I used to love listening to Prairie Home Companion on the way home from church on Sunday afternoons. This great storyteller. Emily read me a story from Home to Harmony, and in the story, there's this elderly couple who's been the town doctor for generations and generations, and they're ready to sell their home. But they don't want to just sell their house to anybody. They want to sell it to someone who will keep this one wall in the house unpainted. The reason this one wall was so precious to them is because that's where they marked the heights of their children as they grew up in that house. They'd had three children, and one of them, their son Jack, had died when he was about eight years old, and they had his name scribbled next to his height not long before he had passed. And this, this family, the doctor and his wife, who'd, who'd spent decades in this house, finally struck a deal with the pastor in town requiring a couple of things. One, we need to be able to come over and look at the wall that you haven't painted. And, and two, we need to be able to come over and sit on the porch and read the newspaper sometimes on the weekend. And the pastor and his wife agreed. This comes from the story. It said, so they moved out and we moved in. Every Saturday morning, weather permitting, Dr. Neely brings his paper and sits reading it in his old porch rocker. Every now and again, they stop in to visit and pull aside the dining room curtain and remember. Mrs. Neely will reach out and trace her finger along Jack's name. Over the left-leaning J and the small A and the backward C and the capital K. Our first week in the house, I took my boys and stood them along the wall on the other side of the dining room window and marked their heights. Levi wrote his name in crooked kindergarten letters. Six inches underneath it, I wrote Addison's name and the date. Our first night in the house, my wife and I were lying in bed. And I was thanking God for my blessings. 
Thanking God for not having to pull aside a dining room curtain to have my children near. That they were right down the hall, asleep in their Superman underwear, their little blue chests rising and falling to the pulse of their dreams. I thought how some blessings are fickle guests. Just when we think they're here to stay, they pack their bags and move. When we're in the midst of blessing, we think it's our due that blessing lasts forever. Next thing you know, we're sitting helpless beside a hospital bed. All we're left with is a name on a wall, a toy in a desk, and memories that haunt our sleep. Sometimes we come to gratitude too late. It's only after blessing has passed on that we realize what we had. And when Mrs. Neely stands in our dining room tracing her fingers along the names, I bet that's what she was thinking. That the time to delight in blessings is when blessings are close at hand. In receiving and believing the gospel, the awareness that Jesus has suffered for us naturally yields a recognition of the blessing of life. That the world is now suddenly full of color and meaning. That God and Christ has injected meaning and worth into the world and into the heart of every person because every person you see is a person for whom Jesus died. And the recognition of that grace renders a kind of internal effervescence, a bubbling up that lifts one's spirits. And this recognition can make a heart lighter even amid difficulty. I think of Paul and Silas in the prison singing hymns of joy. I think of the story of those, those two women, those sisters in Christ in Carthage, Perpetua and Felicity, who as they entered the arena preparing to be martyred, it said they described them as beautiful and of joyous countenance. I think of older people that I know, some in this room who have walked with Jesus and they've proved him or and or and they've got an easy laugh that they've learned through trusting him in difficulty. Joy, that natural effervescence, is grace recognized. Now, one of the greatest problems that we have in our world is the epidemic of chronic seriousness and outrage. Seriousness is like, I've likened it to being like a closed garage door. There are very real problems that we deal with in life. Imagine that, you know, you're pulling into your garage and there are toxic fumes spewing out of the back of your car. Well, as long as the garage door is open, they've got some ventilation, they've got somewhere to go. The, the fumes represent the difficulties that you and I deal with in life. Seriousness and chronic seriousness means we're shutting the garage door and those fumes have nowhere to go. The fumes are a threat, but the greater threat is they've got no ventilation. And that is how most people in our world are living right now, constantly outraged and living in chronic seriousness. Chronic seriousness is grace unrecognized. Chronic serious means there's nothing good going on in the world. Everything should spark outrage. Chronic seriousness flattens the spirit and it dampens the soul, and it's just a bummer to be around. You know some Eeyore kind of people like Debbie Downer? Like, yeah, 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 you know about feline AIDS? 
Again, if you laughed at that, we could be friends. Everyone else, sorry. Chronic seriousness is often tied to a white-knuckle, nose-to-the-grindstone, all-of-life-is-on-my-shoulders kind of attitude. Many people who are living in chronic seriousness are the embodiment of the quote, if your only tool's a hammer, all the world's a nail. On the left and the right, we've got people banging on about their rights in life, and so many of us are failing to see the gifts and the graces of God in this life. And it robs us of joy. It's a failure to recognize grace. Now, there is a way to do serious work joyfully, which is to say to do serious work with a recognition that life itself is grace. When Paul says in places like Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. He's aware that entitlement and ingratitude are like a kryptonite to joy, a kryptonite to our spirit. And he's calling us to acknowledge, to recognize the grace that God has given us again. To see as grace, to see as gift, to see as blessing the things that he's put in our lives. Now, you might be wondering, is this a tip jar? I do remember some chapel services when I was at ORU where pastors were preaching and some people would get up and put money on the stage. I'm like, what? Is that a thing? I I don't know. That's a weird one. But uh, when the church was starting, uh, it was uh, a friend of mine said to me, look, John, your church is going to be great. Jesus said, if you remain in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you're going to remain in Jesus. The church is going to be great. And we started with this posture of we're going to actively ignore all of the advice we get from church planting experts and just try to get a group of people together to pray and read the Bible and memorize scripture and trust that God's going to do this stuff. And so I I got this this jar and I wrote, sometimes you get lucky, which is like a tongue-in-cheek kind of way for me of saying like, be on the lookout for those times when God just does stuff. And so anytime I found a coin on the ground, it's like, hey, sometimes you get lucky. I just, I just came upon this little miracle. And then that's how the church grew. It's like, wow, Ben and Noel Kilgore want to be the worship leaders for our church? That's awesome. Like, well, that's more than I could have asked or dreamed of. And, and, and we started with this kind of posture. Now, Chris Cooper is in the room. Where are you, Chris? Chris came in and saw this sometimes you get lucky jar and he put in his own post-it which was curse jar and uh, put a dollar in there so when people come in they think that I've like have a cursing problem. Chris, you did this. (laughs) But we started from this place of like what's God going to do next? And I think when we come to trust in Jesus, we start often from this posture of like a joy-filled response to the gospel. But as we grow, as time passes, we have this natural pull away from the gospel toward the law. We have this pull from trust toward strategy, from adventure. What is God going to do next? How is he going to lead us to control? How can I make sure I don't lose the things that I've gained? This movement from him and what he has done, is doing, and will do to me and the things that I can control. But we must not embrace another gospel. The gospel is the good news of all that God has done in Jesus Christ, all that he is doing now, and all that he will do to bring healing and redemption to the world, to the cosmos on this grand scale, even to our individual lives. We must not embrace another gospel. 
And so as we get ready to receive communion this morning, I want to give you a couple of questions to consider and to pray about, to talk about with your friends or your apprentice group this week on the theme of joy. The first is that if joy is grace recognized, how can we ask the Holy Spirit to help us see God's grace in this moment? It's possible that he's doing things in your life right now. He's, he's answering the prayers that you didn't even know to vocalize. If joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, it means the ability to recognize that grace, that goodness, that provision is a gift that the Spirit gives. So maybe you would just pray to the Lord, Lord, will you fill me with the capacity to recognize the grace that you've given me? Another question you might reflect on is, if I find myself stuck in chronic seriousness, if I find myself stuck in chronic seriousness, where am I guilty of entitlement and ingratitude? If those things are a kryptonite to joy, if you find yourself in chronic seriousness, where are you guilty of entitlement and ingratitude? And a question for all of us, maybe, maybe those of you who've never trusted in Jesus, but for those of us who have in the past, have I experienced the grace of Jesus Christ by believing the gospel? Maybe you're like, yeah, I did at Falls Creek, you know, in 1997. But today would be an invitation to repent and to believe the gospel again. The gospel being the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table, thinking about the cross and thinking about joy, my mind is naturally drawn to Hebrews chapter 12. You know how it begins there, for since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and um, fix our eyes on Jesus. I know I'm skipping the run and run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Even Jesus in undergoing his suffering had the capacity to recognize the grace that would be bestowed on the whole world through his passion. And as we come to the table again today, may God give us fresh eyes to recognize the grace that is given to us, not only to the whole world, but to me and to the people I love and even to the people that I hate. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I am, I am guilty of being a serious person, a, a person who is given to seriousness in a way that fails to recognize your grace. How quickly I, I am drawn from the adventure of trusting you to moving toward fear and control. How often I find myself drawn away from the gospel toward the law and I want to like, like strong hand my way through the life of faith and, and it's a problem. And Jesus, I pray for myself and I pray for all of us in this room to give us the capacity to recognize your grace and your good work that's active in the world. Jesus, the, the challenges of being a person, we could name some of the ones even just politically in our country that feel so in our face. The challenges we face at a national scale, a cosmic scale, we're dealing with inflation, we're dealing with relational difficulties and disappointments feel more than we can bear. And so we just pray that in your mercy, you'd have compassion on us, you'd throw us a bone, you'd fill us again with your spirit and fill us with joy again in your presence. As we receive communion today, pour out your spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. 
Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ. Accompany with them your Holy Spirit, filling us with joy, filling us with love, filling us with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with gentleness, with faithfulness, with self-control. We love you and we trust in you. And all God's people said, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.